Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Hello, funny people. Welcome once again to Four Cents of Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez-Kassmeyer, and this is the Reader's Corner, back on its usual day of Wednesday. Um, I'm, of course, recording this the night before, thankfully, so all's well that ends well. So this week's author um, was sort of inspired by uh, something that happened uh, on uh, last Friday. I happen to mention uh, in this, this past week's Weekly Waffle that my friend friends Val, Will, and I all went to go see Tonina Saputo in her farewell concert. And on the way home, uh, Will was nice enough to to give me a lift back. Um, He happened to mention an author who, at the moment, I I, I shouldn't tell you what was going on in the car because it it would possibly make him look a little bit bad, so I won't say that. But my friend Will and I got to talking about uh, literature because very frequently whenever our whenever we have a conversation it usually devolves into something having to do with either books or comedy or occasionally music because those are our overlapping interests and um he happened to mention that at that moment when we were driving back i guess because the whole experience of seeing tonina live and seeing that concert because of course you know it being a concert there was also a big amount of light show going on along with it and so um it gave the whole experience as fun as it was it also gave it a slight psychedelic feel and so will it for some reason it brought to mind to will's mind i should say um an author and a work that at that moment he really for some reason wanted to hear or wanted to read and that, and he, who, who, he also described, and this is one of the reasons why I'm doing this episode this week, as rather obscure. And the author he mentioned was Allen Ginsberg, and the work that he was talking about was Howl, arguably Ginsberg's most famous poem. And it just so happened that when, when he finally, I think at one point he actually called it Whale because he was having a little bit of trouble with the recalling the actual title of the poem. But uh, once, once we figured out what it was, once we remembered what it was, I started quoting him the opening lines of the poem, which go, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters longing for um, ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. (laughs) (laughs) Halfway through the conversation, as I'm quoting the opening lines of Howl, he looks at me and says, Did you memorize the whole fucking poem? (laughs) My memory is pretty good, but it's not good enough to remember the entirety of Howl. It is rather long. As a matter of fact, I don't think... Since the days of Cicero and and Plutarch, you know the, the 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 classical era, I don't think there's been anyone who can memorize the entirety of a long poem like Hal. Maybe you know, maybe I mean Thomas Cromwell was known for having a very quite a good memory and was purportedly able to memorize the entire New Testament and the Old Testament. 
uh, I don't have that kind of a memory. I have a pretty good memory, but it ain't perfect, and it's certainly very far from Edenic. So I just decided that since he happened to mention Howell uh, and Ginsburg and described this work and this author as obscure, that I thought I'd go ahead and, and profile Howell and Ginsburg this week. Um, first of all, I should point out that Howell and Ginsburg, at least to me, are not obscure. Not an obscure writer and certainly not an obscure work, but that's also because I'm an English major and I, all the way through my college career, uh, read a lot of Howell, read a lot of Ginsburg, um, you know, read, just read copious amounts of this author because he's a cornerstone of late 20th century literature as are all the writers of the Beat Generation, but Ginsburg, out of all of them, is probably the most accessible, strangely enough. Um, but first, a little background. So Ginsburg was born in a place called Patterson, New Jersey, which just so happens to be the hometown of another notable American poet, probably not as well known as Ginsburg, and that's William Carlos Williams one of the late modernist, nativist writers of, of, the, of the early 20th century. Williams was actually, believe it or not, even though their writing styles are completely different in terms of how they approach poetry, Williams was a, um, a key influence on Ginsburg and probably gave him a lot of confidence that a guy from Patterson, New Jersey could become a writer. And he also had a lot of examples at home. His father, um, who was, I believe, a doctor, actually. Um, No, 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 a teacher, an English teacher, was also a minor poet and knew a lot about poetics, knew a lot about the technical side of poetry and had a great appreciation for it, even though he himself never really achieved a great deal of notoriety. As a result, Ginsburg grew up breathing and living poetry. He also grew up in a, a very dramatic household. Because while his father was a fairly stable influence in his life, his mother was incredibly erratic. She suffered from a couple of different mental illnesses and eventually was so badly stricken with with many with, with these illnesses. I mean, it, it, this was you know this is early 20th century America. Nobody understands mental illness at this point to the extent that we probably should. And so the only treatment for her, because she was in and out of mental institutions her entire life with different therapies that Ginsburg catalogs in Howell, the many different therapies, and later on in Kaddish as well, his his second great long poem. just just nonsense cures that did that alleviated the symptoms temporarily but eventually gave way to them and her mental illness got to the point where the only treatment the only surefire treatment that anybody knew that definitely worked and kept people from killing themselves essentially because at some at one point her blood pressure was apparently so high from synesthesia and all these other side effects of her mental illness that uh, she was probably going to have a stroke at any point and was banging her head literally against a wall just to try and alleviate some of the symptoms and so eventually he signed a release uh, because I think at some point his parents actually got a divorce <laughs> understandably so the poor father um, you know was was stuck with this woman who was not compass mentis um, and Ginsburg signed the release to have his mother lobotomized which to his dying day, he considered to be the worst decision of his life. One of the absolute worst decisions of his life. 
Anyway, later on in life, um, he started attending college at Columbia University. This is where he crossed paths with the with two of the other three main figures of the Beat Generation. Jack Kerouac, who was a student and a direct contemporary of his at Columbia, and William Burroughs, who was sort of puttering around New York and was a friend of Jack's and eventually kind of nudged Ginsburg in the direction um, that he eventually would go in, of, of total naked honesty. Actually, it's kind of interesting, because Ginsburg, because Kerouac and Burroughs had a sort of joint collaboration in creating Ginsburg the writer. Burroughs gave them a lot of books, lots of books, especially, you know, obscure works, um, writers who he thought were worth mentioning. Among them was a French poet whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, but anyway, um, the, the, What's his name? Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, hey, uh, one of the, a, a lot of great stuff. So he sort of fed them books, as well as all the reading that they themselves had been doing. But it was also Kerouac who, by this point, was trying to crank out his his, his the the novel that would make his name, which in the end would become On the Road. At this time, he was still kind of writing in a completely different style, even collaborated with William S. Burroughs on a novel called In the Hippos Were Boiled in Their Tanks, which was kind of a early pulpy thriller sort of piece of work that didn't even see publication until much later in their lives. But Kerouac had, had you know, he, he was under the influence of Thomas Wolfe at this time and eventually would produce The Town and the City, which was his first published novel. But it wasn't, it wasn't quite Kerouac just yet. That wouldn't happen until On the Road. But one thing that uh, that Kerouac did influence Ginsburg directly on was the idea of first thought, best thought. That sort of, you know, the stream of consciousness writing style that characterizes Kerouac's novels. Uh, you can see it in On the Road. I mean, famously, he wrote the first draft of On the Road on one single piece of teletype paper, a butcher's paper, with... You know, single-spaced, and uh, of course, there's a Ramana clay, which means that he it was based on real events. And in the first draft, he used all the original names of all the actual people, including Ginsburg and Burroughs, and himself. Eventually, we just kind of go white those out and you know add in fake names, pseudonyms. Uh, but that idea of first thought, best thought of just you know pounding it out, pounding it out, going to the typewriter and pounding it out. Now, apparently, Kerouac, this is sort of a false idea about Kerouac, believe it or not. He apparently was a, was actually rather obsessive when it came to how his prose sounded, and he apparently did dedicate quite a bit of thinking. But that idea of first thought, best thought really appealed to Ginsburg, who was able to kind of run with it. And the place where he was able to finally, truly run with it was with Hal. Um, he started writing it. Those early stanzas, those early lines, are very heavily influenced by uh, William Carlos Williams. And then when he gets to the first who, that's when he starts turning into Allen Ginsberg, you might say. Allen Ginsberg became Allen Ginsberg when he hit that first line describing the best minds of his generation. It's kind of interesting, because Ginsburg was actually the first writer to, in, in American literature, 
to fully embrace free verse. As a matter of fact, it, it's not until he gets later on in his career when he's a much older man and he's writing poems like Father Death Blues and The Skeletons and so forth, these these pieces that he would sing, literally. Um, he, he'd stand up on, well, he'd sit on stage with this little kind of organ thing, this uh, pump organ thing, this tiny little machine. You can actually see him using it in a couple of interviews. Uh, including a face-to-face interview that he did on British television. Go look it up. It's on YouTube, I'm pretty sure. Um, But Howell was different. Howell instead was very much influenced by Walt Whitman. Interesting footnote. Walt Whitman, when uh, uh, Ginsburg was a student, and when Kerouac, therefore, was a student, was reviled by academia. American literature kind of completely overlooked him, you know, and Whitman, you know, a lot of people say that independent publishing these days is not respectable. Well, guess what? Leaves of Grass was self-published by Walt Whitman. He literally would set the type himself, and it went through nine editions in his own lifetime. So, suck on it. (laughs) He's now considered one of the greatest writers in American literature. But Ginsburg took the free verse that Walt Whitman wholly embraced long before it was a respectable form and used a 20th century vocabulary and used his own experience and created something that is totally unusual and unique. The first time later on, this is several years later when the whole group, the whole the beat generation has moved out to San Francisco and the San Francisco poetry renaissance has kind of gotten into full swing uh, Ginsburg debuts at this little art gallery poetry reading uh, he debuts how? He gets up on stage and starts reciting this very long personal poem of his and Everybody knew in the audience, granted most of the people in the audience were friends of his, and they believed that he was quite brilliant on his own, everybody knew that this would change everything. And one of the people in that audience just so happened to be the recently passed Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the owner and proprietor of City Lights Bookstore. And it's said that after hearing Ginsburg do Howl, he sent a telegram to him with that famous line that Emerson's, uh, em- Emerson sent to, to Whitman after reading Leaves of Grass, which is, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. And the second line read, when do we get the manuscript? How later uh, was published by City Lights originally in its first printing. It was the last, one of the last pieces of literature along with Burroughs' Naked Lunch to be tried for obscenity. And as Ginsburg noted later on in his life, uh, even if the trial had gone against him, he would have won anyway. Either way, he won. If, if he won on the grounds of free speech, he would win, and that would be great. If he if he lost, he won anyway, because from that point on, Howell would be this forbidden piece of work that would drive millions of young people to go and find it and read a copy of it because everybody said it's dirty, it's bad, and, you know, it would evoke curiosity in the young. And so even though it would be banned, everybody would read it. It's a banned work that everybody would read. Same thing with Naked Lunch. And it went on to become a unique poem because nobody... Nobody since Ginsburg has ever attempted to write a poem like this. 
completely devoid of nearly all, nearly all poetic accoutrement. The only thing that really keeps it together is a technique called anaphora. That's a, that's a literary nerd jargon term. Basically what it is, it's a, a repeating anchor of a word that comes back again and again and again, almost like a refrain in a song. You just constantly come back to it. It's home base. You return to it. And, and Howell, which is a fairly long poem, has three sections, and each section on its own has its own anaphora. So in the first section, it's who, the word who, acts as an anaphora, acts as the anchor that com- that continuously keeps the poem, which sounds like this mad raving, because it's meant to sound like a mad raving, for Christ's sake, it's called Howl, after all. Um, it constantly comes back to who, who, you know, who did this, who did that, who did this, who did that, so on and so forth. You get into the second section, the anaphora is Moloch, a, a pretty much an invented word, I think, that Ginsburg either plucked out of obscurity from a text he had read or just made up on the spot. And it, that becomes the anaphora of part two. Then finally with part three, you get into something that sounds very much like a refrain, which is the phrase, I'm with you in Rockland, the anchor that constantly keeps it together. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it, it's a unique literary technique, and it, it's really the only thing that gives the whole thing its structure. But that's what makes it also sound so unique, because if anybody ever tried to do their own version of this, a long poem, everybody would immediately call it out, because Ginsberg is just so unique. He's on his own. He's all, he, he's a voice in the wilderness howling, trying to get back, trying to get through the bullshit of the world, and this was one of his masterworks, and I think it should be celebrated a lot more, so here it is, my reading of Allen Ginsberg's Howl. Enjoy. Ginsburg. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night who poverty and tatters and hallowed-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms and underwear burning their money in wastebaskets and listening to the terror through the wall, who got busted in their pubic beards returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire in paint hotels or drank turpentine in Paradise Alley, death or purgatoried their torsos night after night, with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls, 
Incomparable blind streets of shuddering cloud and lightning in the mind leaping toward poles of Canada and Patterson, illuminating all the motionless world of time between, peyote solidities of halls, backyard green tree cemetery dawns, wine drunkenness over the rooftops, storefront burrows of tea-head joyride neon blinking traffic light, sun and moon and tree vibrations in the roaring winter dusks of Brooklyn, ashcan rantings and kind king light of mind, who chain themselves to subways for the endless ride from Battery to Holy Bronx on Benzedrine until the noise of wheels and children brought them down, shuddering, mouth-racked and battered, bleak of brain, all drained of brilliance in the drear light of zoo who sank all night in submarine light of Bickford's floated out and sat through the stale beer afternoon in desolate fugazis, listening to the crack of doom on the hydrogen jukebox, who talked continuously seventy hours from park to pad to bar to Bellevue to museum to the Brooklyn Bridge, a lost battalion of platonic conversationalists jumping down the stoops, off fire escapes, off window sills, off Empire State, out of the moon, yakety yakking, screaming, vomiting, whispering facts and memories and anecdotes, and eyeball kicks and shocks of hospitals and jails and wars. Whole intellects disgorged in total recall for seven days and nights with brilliant eyes meet for the synagogue cast on the pavement. Who vanished into nowhere Zen, New Jersey, leaving a trail of ambiguous picture postcards of Atlantic City Hall, suffering eastern sweats and tangerine bone grindings and migraines of China under junk withdrawal in Newark's bleak furnished room who wandered and round and around at midnight in the railroad yard wondering where to go and went leaving no broken hearts who lit cigarettes in boxcars 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 racketing through snow toward lonesome farms in grandfather night who studied Plautius, Poe, St. John of the Cross, Telepathy, and Bop Kabbalah because the cosmos instinctively vibrated at their feet in Kansas who loaned it through the streets of Idaho seeking visionary Indian angels who were visionary Indian angels, who thought they were only mad when Baltimore gleamed in supernatural ecstasy, who jumped in limousines with the Chinamen of Oklahoma on the impulse of winter midnight streetlight small town rain, who lounged hungry and lonesome through Houston seeking jazz or sex or soup, and followed the brilliant Spaniard to converse about America and eternity, a hopeless task, and so took ship to Africa, who disappeared into the volcanoes of Mexico, leaving behind nothing but the shadow of dungarees and the lava and ash of poetry scattered in fireplace Chicago, who reappeared on the West Coast investigating the FBI in beards and shorts with big pacifist eyes, sexy in their dark skin, passing out incomprehensible leaflets, who burned cigarette holes in their arms protesting the narcotic tobacco haze of capitalism, who distributed super-communist pamphlets in Union Square, weeping and undressing while the sirens of Los Alamos wailed them down, and wailed down Wall, and the Staten Island Ferry also wailed, 
who broke down crying in white gymnasiums naked and trembling before the machinery of other skeletons, who bit detectives in the neck and shrieked with delight in police cars for committing no crime but their own wild cooking pederasty and intoxication, who howled on their knees in the subway and were dragged off the roof waving genitals and manuscripts, who let themselves be fucked in the ass by saintly motorcyclists and screamed with joy, who blew and were blown by those human seraphim, the sailors, caresses of Atlantic and Caribbean love, who bawled in the morning, in the evenings, in rose gardens and the grass of public parks and cemeteries scattering their semen freely to whomever come who may who hiccuped endlessly trying to giggle but wound up with a sob behind a parturition in a Turkish bath when the blonde and naked angel came to pierce them with a sword, who lost their love boys to the three old shrews of fate, the one-eyed shrew of the heterosexual dollar, the one-eyed shrew that winks out of the womb, and the one-eyed shrew that does nothing but sit on her ass and snip the intellectual golden threads of the craftsman's loom who copulated ecstatic and insatiate with a bottle of beer, a sweetheart, a package of cigarettes, a candle, and fell off the bed and continued along the floor and down the hall and ended up fainting on the wall with a vision of ultimate cunt and come eluding the last jism of consciousness who sweetened the snatches of a million girls trembling in the sunset and were red-eyed in the morning but prepared to sweeten the snatches of the sunrise flashing buttocks under barns and naked in the lake, who went out whoring through Colorado in myriad stolen night cars, N.C., secret hero of these poems, Coxman and Adonis of Denver, joyed to the memory of his innumerable lays of girls in empty lots and diner backyards, movie houses, rickety rows, on mountain tops, in caves, or with gaunt waitresses in familiar roadside lonely petticoat upliftings, and especially secret gas station solipsisms of John's and hometown alleys too, who faded out in vast sordid movies, were shifted in dreams, woke on a sudden Manhattan, and picked themselves up out of basements hungover with heartless 2K and horrors of 3rd Avenue iron dreams, and stumbled to unemployment offices who walked all night with their shoes full of blood on the snowbank docks waiting for a door in the East River to open to a room full of steam heat and opium, who created great suicidal dramas on the apartment cliff banks of the Hudson under the wartime blue floodlight of the moon, and their heads shall be crowned with laurel in oblivion who ate the lamb stew of the imagination or digested the crab at the muddy bottom of the rivers of bowery who wept at the romance of the streets with their pushcarts full of onions and bad music who sat in boxes breathing in the darkness under the bridge and rose up to build harpsichords in their lofts who coughed on the sixth floor of Harlem, crowned with flame under the tubercular sky surrounded by orange crates of theology who scribbled all night rocking and rolling over lofty incantations which, in the yellow morning, were stanzas of gibberish, who cooked rotten animals, lung, heart, feet, tail, borscht, and tortillas, dreaming of the pure vegetable kingdom, 
who plunged themselves under meat trucks looking for an egg, who threw their watches off the roof to cast their ballot for eternity outside of time, and alarm clocks fell on their heads every day for the next decade, who cut their wrists three times successively, unsuccessfully, gave up, and were forced to open antique stores where they thought they were growing old and cried who were buried alive in their innocent flannel suits on Madison Avenue amid blasts of leaden verse and the tanked-up clatter of the iron regiments of fashion and the nitroglycerin shrieks of the fairies of advertising and the mustard gas of sinister intelligent editors or run down by the drunken taxicabs of absolute reality who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, this actually happened, and walked away unknown and forgotten into the ghostly days of Chinatown soup alleyways and fire trucks, not even one free beer. Who sang out their windows in despair, fell out of the subway window, jumped in the filthy passick, leapt on negroes, cried all over the street, danced on broken wine glasses, barefoot, smashed phonograph records of nostalgic 1930s German jazz, finished the whiskey and threw up groaning into the bloody toilet, moans in their ears and the blast of colossal steam whistles who barreled down the highways of the past journeying to each other's hot rod Golgotha jail solitude watch or Birmingham jazz incarnation who drove cross-country 72 hours to find out if I had a vision or you had a vision or he had a vision to find out eternity who journeyed to Denver who died in Denver who came back to Denver and waited in vain who watched over Denver and brooded and loaned in Denver and finally went away to find out the time, and now Denver is lonesome for her heroes, who fell on their knees in hopeless cathedrals praying for each other's salvation and light and breasts until the soul illuminated its hair for a second, who crashed through their minds in jail waiting for impossible criminals with golden heads and the charm of reality in their hearts who sang sweet blues to Alcatraz, who retired to Mexico to cultivate a habit or rocky mount to tender Buddha or Tangiers to boys or Southern Pacific to the black locomotive or Harvard to Narcissus to Woodlawn to the daisy chain or grave who demanded sanity trials accusing the radio of hypnotism and were left with their insanity and their hands and a hung jury, who threw potato salad at CCNY lecturers on Dadaism and subsequently presented themselves on the granite steps of the madhouse with shaven heads and harlequin speech of suicide demanding instantaneous lobotomy, and were given instead the concrete void of insulin, metrosol, electricity, hydrotherapy, psychotherapy, occupational therapy, ping-pong, and amnesia who in humorless protest overturned only one symbolic ping-pong table, resting briefly in catatonia, returning years later truly bald except for a wig of blood and tears and fingers to the visible madman doom of the wards of the mad towns of the east. Pilgrim states, rocklands, and gravestones, fetid halls, bickering with the echoes of the soul, rocking and rolling in the midnight, solitude bench, dolomin realms of love, dream of life, a nightmare, bodies turned to stone as heavy as the moon. 
with Mother finally, and the fantastic book flung out of the tenement window, and the last door closed at 4 a.m., and the last telephone slammed at the wall in reply, and the last furnished room emptied down to the last piece of mental furniture, a yellow paper rose twisted on a wire hanger in the closet, and even that imaginary nothing but a hopeful little bit of hallucination. Ah, Carl, while you are not safe, I am not safe, and now you're really in the total animal soup of time. And who therefore ran through the icy streets obsessed with a sudden flash of the alchemy of the use of the ellipse, the catalog, the meter, and the vibrating plane, who dreamt and made incarnate gaps in time and space through images juxtaposed and trapped the archangel of the soul between two visual images and joined the elemental verbs and set the noun and dash of consciousness together, jumping with sensation a patera omnipotens atira deus. To recreate the syntax and measure of poor human prose and stand before you speechless and intelligent and shaking with shame, rejected yet confessing out the soul to conform to the rhythm of thought in his naked and endless head. The madman bum, an angel beaten time, unknown, yet putting down here what might be left to say in time come after death and rose reincarnate in the ghostly clothes of jazz in the golden horn shadow of the band and blew the suffering of america's naked mind for love into an ele ele lama lama sabrachina saxophone cry that shivered the cities down to the last radio with the absolute heart of the poem of life butchered out of their own bodies good to eat a thousand years What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans, and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, Moloch the heavy judger of men. Moloch the incomprehensible prison, Moloch the crossbone soulless jailhouse and congress of sorrows, Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the vast stone of war, Moloch the stunned governments, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are ten armies, Moloch whose breast is a cannibal dynamo, Moloch whose ear is a smoking tomb, Moloch Moloch whose eyes are a thousand blind windows, Moloch whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's, Moloch whose factories dream and croak in the fog, Moloch whose smokestacks and antennae crown the cities. Moloch whose love is endless oil and stone, Moloch whose soul is electricity and banks, Moloch whose poverty is the specter of genius, Moloch whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen, Moloch whose name is the mind. Moloch in whom I sit lonely, Moloch in whom I dream angels, crazy in Moloch, cocksucker in Moloch, lovelack and manless in Moloch, 
Moloch who entered my soul early, Moloch in whom I am a consciousness without a body, Moloch who frightened me out of my natural ecstasy, Moloch whom I abandoned, wake up in Moloch, light streaming out of the sky. Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invincible madhouses, granite cocks, monstrous bombs. They broke their backs lifting Moloch to heaven, pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere about us. Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies gone down the American River. Dreams, adorations, illuminations, religions, the whole boatload of sensitive bullshit. Breakthroughs, over the river, flips and crucifixions, gone down the flood. Highs, epiphanies, despairs, ten years animals, screams and suicides. Minds, new loves, mad generation, down on the rocks of time. Real holy laughter in the river, they saw it all. The wild eyes, the holy yells, they bid farewell. They jumped off the roof to solitude, waving, carrying flowers, down to the river, into the street. Carl Solomon, I'm with you in Rockland where you're madder than I am. I'm with you in Rockland where you must feel very strange. I'm with you in Rockland where you imitate the shade of my mother. I'm with you in Rockland where you've murdered your twelve secretaries. I'm with you in Rockland where you laugh at this invisible humor. I'm with you in Rockland where we are great writers on the same dreadful typewriter. I'm with you in Rockland where your condition has become serious and is reported on the radio. I'm with you in Rockland where the faculties of the skull no longer admit the worms of the senses. I'm with you in Rockland where you drink the tea of the breasts of the spinsters of Utica. I'm with you in Rockland where you pun on the bodies of your nurses, the harpies of the Bronx. I'm with you in Rockland where you scream in a straitjacket that you're losing the game of the actual ping-pong of the abyss. I'm with you in Rockland, where you bang on the catatonic piano. The soul is innocent and immortal. It should never die ungodly in an armed madhouse. I'm with you in Rockland, where fifty more shocks will never return your soul to its body again from its pilgrimage to a cross in the void. I'm with you in Rockland, where you accuse your doctors of insanity and plot the Hebrew Socialist Revolution against the fascist National Gogotha. I'm with you in Rockland, where you will spit the heavens of Long Island and resurrect your living human Jesus from the superhuman tomb. I'm with you in Rockland, where there are 25,000 mad comrades all together singing the final stanzas of the Internationale. I'm with you in Rockland, where we hug and kiss the United States under our bedsheets, the United States that coughs all night and won't let us sleep. I'm with you in Rockland, where we wake up electrified out of the coma by our own souls' airplanes roaring over the roof. They've come to drop angelic bombs. The hospital illuminates itself. Imaginary walls collapse. Oh, skinny legions run outside. Oh, starry spangled shock of mercy. The eternal war is here. Oh, victory, forget your underwear. You're free. I'm with you in Rockland. 
In my dreams you walk dripping from a sea journey on the highway across America in tears to the door of my cottage in the western night. I don't want to give people the wrong impression that Allen Ginsberg only wrote Howl, and that was it. As a matter of fact, Howl was really only the beginning of his life and his career. And there were many, many other poems that he wrote subsequent to that. And so it was, it was really the, just the beginning for him. And, but what one hell of a beginning that is, to write... A poem that in many ways uh, redirected what late 20th century poetry would end up being in the United States. Uh, it was a real game changer and it was truly, truly unique. But there were actually several other poems that he wrote after that. Hang on a second, let me see. Many poems, and I'm flipping through one of my old uh, school anthologies, you know, Eight American Poets. Uh, by Joe Canaroa, probably said that name wrong, as usual, but it, there were poems like Sunflower Sutra, America, which again used that, um, that technique of anaphora to kind of keep things together, because Ginsburg was truly loyal to the concept of free verse and firmly believed that this was the direction that poetry had to move in. But possibly the greatest thing he did after that, subsequent to that, was very likely um, Kaddish, uh, which was the second great long poem of his that he began when he was living in Paris. Um, there's a site in Paris called the Beat Hotel, or at least that's what it's known as today. Um, and it was this grungy little hotel that was owned by this little old lady, this little French lady, who was willing to rent rooms to people, to residents, for several francs a month. Not per week, not per day, month. And so you people were able to kind of... Uh, housed there and lived there fairly cheaply and by this point Ginsburg was was with his uh, the, the man who would be his lifelong partner Peter Olofsky who was with him all the way until the time he died 1997 uh, from a combination of I think it was heart disease and no kidney failure I think it was kidney failure because he was suffering from diabetes at the time uh, and was you know suffering a lot of the after effects of that but they were over in the Bean Hotel, as was Burroughs, as was the fourth member of the, of the, of the quartet, of the Beat Quartet. For some reason, it took me a while to find that word. Uh, you know, Kerouac was still basically ensconced in, in Florida with his mother by this point, but Burroughs was there, uh, Ginsburg was there, and Gregory Corso was there. And they were all producing some of their best work. Ginsburg had written Howl by this point. But Burroughs had, Burroughs had written two novels by this point, Junkie and Queer, 
the first two novels he wrote, which were kind of written in a in a writing style reminiscent of Dashiell Hammett and a lot of the pulp fiction writers of that time. Uh, and so he he he'd broken in, but he hadn't really made a splash yet. And it was actually at the Beat Hotel that Naked Lunch was more or less assembled. And I say assembled because Burroughs had written this massive material, famously known as the Word Hoard, just this massive amount of copy that he'd pounded out on typewriter after typewriter um, and he was a touch typist and he was apparently pretty fast on the typewriter he could just pound one of these things to death over you know several months a couple of years and so he had all this massive material and uh, and, and that he'd produced and so Ginsburg and Corso and several other people who were living at the Beat Hotel at that time helped him type up sections of it which then went to a, pr- a printer in France an English language printer by the way and it was published as The Naked Lunch and eventually that's what led to the, the, the court case and so forth so it was originally published by the French <laughs> But it was while he was living there that Ginsburg subsequently began Caddish, which was for Naomi Ginsburg. It was his... Ginsburg, as I'm sure many of you are aware, was Jewish. Um, ethnically Jewish. I don't think he was really religiously Jewish, but his mother had been religiously Jewish, as had his father. Ginsburg himself was ascribed more to Buddhism later on in life. Uh, but there's a tradition in Judaism which is uh, the reading of the Kaddish over the grave of the uh, of the deceased. But for some reason, detailed in Kaddish, actually, Naomi Ginsburg never had that happen for her. And so the Kaddish was never read over her, and Ginsburg had, you know, like, like, all, like all people who, even if they had a rough childhood or a less than ideal childhood, he still missed his mother, and apparently the grief of losing her finally caught up with him while he was in Paris, and he began writing the first lines of what eventually became Kaddish in a little cafe by the uh, by, by the Beat Hotel, and they were as such. Strange now to think of you gone without corsets and eyes, while I walk on the sunny pavement of Greenwich Village, downtown Manhattan, clear winter noon, and I've been up all night talking, talking, reading the Kaddish aloud, listening to Ray Charles' blues shout blind on a phonograph, the rhythm, the rhythm, and your memory in my head three years after, and read Adonis's last triumphant stanzas aloud, wept, realizing how we suffer, and how death is that remedy all singers dream of. Sing, remember, prophecy is in the Hebrew anthem, or the Buddhist book of answers, and my own imagination of a withered leaf at dawn. Dreaming back through life, your time, and mine accelerating toward apocalypse, the final moment, the flower burning in the day, and what comes after, looking back on the mind itself that saw an American city a flash away, and the great dream of me or China, or you and a phantom Russia, or a crumpled bed that never existed, like a poem in the dark, escaped back to oblivion, no more to say and nothing to weep for but the beings in the dream, trapped in its disappearance, sighing, screaming with it, buying and selling pieces of phantom, worshipping each other, worshipping the god included in it all, lounging or inevitably, 
while it lasts a vision. Anything more? It leaps about me as I go out and walk the street, look back over my shoulder, 7th Avenue, the battlements of window office buildings shouldering each other high, under a cloud, tall as the sky an instant, and the sky above, an old blue place. Or down the avenue to the south, too, as I walk toward the Lower East Side, where you walked fifty years ago, little girl, from Russia, eating the first poisonous tomatoes of America, frightened on the dock, then struggling in the crowd of Orchard Street toward what? Toward Newark, toward candy store, first homemade sodas of the century, hand-churned ice cream in the back room on musty brown floorboards toward education, marriage, nervous breakdown, operation, teaching school, and learning to be mad in a dream. What is this life? You know, that's that was his memorial to his mother, if you can believe that. But, <clears throat> you know, my personal favorite of all of Ginsburg's later poems, aside from that, is probably Father Death Blues. Hang on a second, let me see if I can pull that up. Father Death Blues, um, one of Ginsburg's most important literary influence, believe it or not, even though Whitman was vital to him, it was actually William Blake who first inspired him. Um, there was, a, there was a, a moment when he was still a student at Columbia where he um, was reading The Sunflower by Blake, one of the famous poems. And he began to hear this voice that he was convinced was William Blake reading the sunflower to him. And he was never able to replicate the experience. And a lot of people have speculated that maybe it was not actually Blake. Uh, that it may have been just his own internal voice who he sort of labeled as Blake later on in life. But this experience was so real that to him, that it kind of drove him to become a poet. And so it was really Blake who, who inspired him. And it was also Blake who inspired his habit later on in life of singing many of his poems. And thus many of the poems he wrote later in life were meant to be sung. And one of those poems was this thing called Father Death Blues. And it goes something like this. <clears throat> I'll do my best to replicate it, by the way. This is my poor imitation of him singing it. Hey, Father Death, I'm flying home. Hey, poor man, you're all alone. Hey, old daddy, I know where I'm going. Father Death, don't cry anymore. Mama's there underneath the floor. Brother Death, please mind the store. Old Auntie Death, don't hide your bones. Old Uncle Death, I hear your groans. Oh, Sister Death, how sweet your moans. Oh, children deaths, go breathe your breaths. Sobbing breaths, ease your deaths. Pain is gone, tears take the rest. Genius, death, your art is done. Lover, death, your body's gone. 
Father Death, I'm coming home. Guru Death, your words are true. Teacher Death, I do thank you for inspiring me to sing this blues. Buddha Death, I wake with you. Dhamma Death, your mind is new. Sangha Death, will work it through. Suffering is what was born. Ignorance made me forlorn. Tearful truths I cannot scorn. Father Breath, once more farewell. Birth you gave was no thing ill. My heart is still, as time will tell. I fucked up one word in that. <laughs> I know I did somewhere. Uh, <clears throat> but, excuse me. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. I, I I just love that poem. And I, you know, it's weird. I actually got chills doing that. <laughs> Get chills at your own bad singing. You know, it's got to be the lyrics. Um, but my, one last thing I'll say about Ginsburg. So... Uh, he and Gregory Corso uh, were very good friends. Gregory Corso, by the way, is another author that you should all check out. Wrote many, many poems, including a poem called uh, The Bomb, another collection of poems, I think, called Gasoline. Uh, you know, just wonderful stuff. And he has something that Ginsburg and, and even Kerouac, and, and not so much Burroughs, but definitely those two lack in a lot of their poetry, which is a sense of humor. Corso's poetry is riddled with it and it's really hard to get humor into poetry without making it ridiculous but they were doing a reading together which is how they they made a little bit of a living when they got older Corso and, and Ginsburg um, and uh, while at the reading after they did the readings and they each read you know poetry you know I think Alan might have read Howell and Corso read a selection of his poems you know maybe his marriage poem uh, and then they did a Q&A, as is pretty customary in a lot of readings. I don't know how many of you listening to this have ever been to author readings, but very frequently, if the author does a reading, the rest of the time, if they don't have some kind of monologue that they're going to do extemporaneously, a little speech, um, they usually take questions from the audience. And one of the questions early on, which set the tone for the rest of the evening, was this. Some lady got up, might have been in Chicago actually, got up and asked Ginsburg, who also I should point out, and if you couldn't tell from how, happened to be a gay man, I happened to, I mentioned, I know I mentioned earlier he was with a man by that time, Peter Olofsky, uh, who he spent the rest of his life with, this woman got up at this reading and said, Mr. Ginsburg, why is there so much hetero homosexuality in your poetry? And Ginsburg makes me laugh every time I think of it. Ginsburg looked at her dead in the eye and said, Cause I'm queer, madam.
shit. <laughs> oh, Allen Ginsberg, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, funny people. Thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next we meet, stay safe, stay healthy, and bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes, Folks, birthing is hard, and dying is mean. So get yourself a little lovin' in between. I'll see you next time.